good to sing about being dust, I think. It's very biblical. And it's a reminder to all of us this morning, dust can't do everything. Dust can't do most things. Apart from the living spirit of God in us, friends, we are dust. And that's a good thing. I think we'll talk more about that, pray more about that together as we get going. But first, if I don't know you, my name is Christina, and I'm one of our associate pastors here. And I was on sabbatical for about three and a half weeks through most of June and early July. And so I'm really excited to be back together with you today and to be jumping back into our year with Jesus. That's the amazing thing about this sermon series. I leave and I come back and we're still with Jesus, right? Best place to be. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Julie. So this morning, we're jumping just a chapter ahead of the teaching that we had last week on prayer and on the loving character we can expect from God when we pray. And so today we're in chapter 12. And Luke chapter 12 begins with a statement that Jesus is preaching to a crowd that has gathered of thousands of people. And he goes on to give us the detail that there's so many people, they are trampling on each other. Okay, so by this point, there's a bunch of people listening to Jesus talk. His momentum has grown. He's more and more popular. There's a ton of people around. Think about a place where you've been, where you've been just crushed in with other people. I don't know about anybody else, but since the pandemic, that like gives me a little bit of internal panic just to think about, right? So as, we, as I read that detail at the beginning of the chapter, I was like, oh, no, that does not sound good. So there's a bunch of them crushed in there together, right? And then Jesus is teaching to this huge crowd on some things that are expected of disciples and some things that are promised to disciples. And then all of a sudden, somehow, this random guy must be close enough and loud enough to be heard in the midst of that mass of people. And he interrupts Jesus' teaching to ask a personal favor. And it's Jesus' response to that interruption that becomes our teaching for today. And I want us to anchor ourselves in the word this morning, so I'm going to read the passage for us. If you want to follow along in your Bibles, it's Luke 12, 13 through 21, and you can also follow with the screen behind me. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So our text for today is a parable, or at least most of it is. There's that really kind of awkward interruption there at the beginning where somebody asks Jesus for help with a family financial matter. And Jesus' response is basically shutting him down, but saying, like, this isn't on mission for me. 
What you're asking is not my role. And then as a great teacher does, Jesus takes this interruption and he makes it profitable for the whole group, turns it into a lesson. He discerns something about the motivation of the man who has asked this favor. And he says to the whole crowd to be on their guard against greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions, he says. Then he punctuates this warning against greed with a parable teaching that pretty much says the same thing and closes with a very similar statement. For this whole exchange and the teaching, most of your Bibles probably call it the parable of the rich fool. And we're going to focus today on the fact that it is a parable because parables are a distinct genre and type of teaching in the Bible. We're going to learn a little bit more about this parable by comparing it quickly to others of its type. So the very first question we ask, what is a parable? Well, this is a parable box. Those of you who know the Wonder Room recognize this. This is how we talk about parables upstairs in the Wonder Room. We use these boxes because they look different and they act different than the other boxes and baskets we use to tell stories in the Wonder Room. The first thing we point out is that this box is gold. Gold reminds us that what's inside is precious and valuable, maybe even old, kept like a treasure over the ages. The next thing we talk about is that this box has a lid. And so to get into the story, we have to open the lid much like you have to open a present to see what's inside. And the funny thing about parables is that sometimes they can be kind of hard to get inside of. But we get to keep coming back over and over again and discovering something new. We talk about parables this way in the Wonder Room because unlike some of Jesus' other teaching, like on the mount or the plain, depending on which gospel you're in, parables aren't really as direct we often have to assume a posture of wondering and leave a little bit of mystery when we try and get inside the meaning of a parable. That's true about most parables. And actually, today's parable is distinct for a few different reasons. First of all, because of its directness. Rachel and I were talking about the passage this week in the office, and she said it seemed pretty straightforward to her. And I totally agree. I think this parable is really simple when it comes to parables. Just from the quick read-through we did, I bet you guys could say what you think the message is. We could distill it down to something maybe like greed is bad, God good, greed bad, God good. Like that's an oversimplification, right? But that's what he says before he starts, that's the story, that's what he says at the end. That's kind of the message of this parable. And that's really weird for a parable to be that direct. So as good students of scripture, we should pay attention that something unique is happening here. You guys, Jesus cares so much about this message. He thinks it's important enough for everyone to hear a warning about greed that he really doesn't veil his meaning at all. That's unique. There's another really interesting difference between this parable and a lot of other ones. In most parables, God only shows up in metaphor or suggestion. We're invited to see him as the father or the master or the landowner, but God never really shows up as himself, except here in this parable. At the very end of the story Jesus tells, God shows up in the starring role of God. 
to give a direct statement of judgment to the parable's main character. That's really weird for a parable. Weird in practice and also harsh-sounding in content. Who caught that the first words out of God's mouth are, you fool? I don't know if that makes anybody uncomfortable. When we say things like that out of God's mouth, it doesn't sound very loving or compassionate. But we have to understand God didn't just show up in this parable to sling an insult, right? This, this phrase, you fool, has very rich scriptural meaning. Scholar Joel Green says that this word, fool, is used throughout scripture to talk of someone who rebels against God or whose practices deny God. And that's exactly what we're supposed to know about the man in this story today, that his practices driven as they were by greed, have caused him to deny God. The fact that God shows up at the end of the parable is really meant to emphasize that he's not anywhere else in it. In all of the man's figuring about how to handle his abundance, God doesn't show up. He doesn't think of God. He doesn't think about God's character or his requirements or even that God has the power to sustain him for the long term. God is nowhere in the reasoning he provides, right? He says, I will store up my surplus for many years to come. Well, that, God's not there. And so we see in those practices and in the reasoning he uses that he has denied God. And the important lesson of this parable is very simple. Greed is so dangerous because it becomes an idol. It takes the place of God. What greed requires of us and what God requires of us are entirely opposite. Therefore, the way of greed is not the way of God. You can't walk them at the same time. To help us really wrap our minds around this simple lesson that has profound consequences on our internal life and our external practices, I want us to think today about the idea of a creed. We've talked a lot about the Jesus creed here and how that's the the beliefs that we form our life on when we follow Jesus. But you know what? I think we all have lived creeds. Sometimes they're the creeds that we say and intellectually believe, and sometimes they're not. And if we look at this story, I think we can see a different creed at work in this man's life. And I'm going to call that today the greed creed. So we've talked a lot about the Jesus creed. It's really simple. You guys probably could tell me what it is, right? Somebody shout it out. Okay, yes. You were very muffled, but I know you're right, Dustin. Is it up there too? Oh, hey. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Very fun. There it is. Yes. Okay, so what I'm calling the greed creed today, if we were to look at this man's life and write it out, I think it would be something like this. Acquire more stuff. Protect your stuff. Assure your security. So side by side, we can look at those creeds and see different focal points and driving forces. The focus of the Jesus creed is God and others with love for self in there. It's got to be healthy, right? But then the focus of the greed creed is just self. The motivation of the Jesus creed is love. And the motivation of the greed creed is, I think we can call it anxiety. That's a little close to home, right? The man's reasoning for building bigger barns is for his own security so that he will have what he needs for many years to come. 
I want to just pause here and let you know that when I say anxiety, I am not talking about the mental health condition, the anxiety that many of us struggle with. This anxiety in this, pro this story, the problem here, is not a mental health condition. It's not a generalized anxiety. It is a very clear lack of trust in God and choosing to trust self over God's faithfulness and provision. The anxiety we're talking about in this story is lived out in choices that do not allow God to be God. So it's clear then how God is pushed out of the equation by this greed creed. But, you know, in comparing those two creeds side by side, we can see that something, or really someone else, is missing from the greed creed way of life. God isn't there, and neither is neighbor. You know, when we had our take-home Lent kits in 2020, because everything was take-home at that point, we used a really cool curriculum that used this parable, and I loved the way that they asked us to think about it. They said, what else could the man have done with his abundant crop besides build bigger barns? And I think the easiest answer there is share, right? He could have chosen to give some of his extra to his neighbors. He could have chosen to make sure from his abundance, other people had enough. That's a very Jesus-shaped decision. That's a very kingdom-shaped decision. And we see that principle all the way back in the Old Testament with the way God set up the people of Israel, right? Abundance equals sharing so others have enough. And that principle is totally absent in the greed-creed way of life. In the greed-creed way of life, the person who is the focus gets all of the abundance, and others are probably left without enough. So when we put those creeds side by side, we see that huge difference because the man doesn't make the Jesus-shaped choice. So after pronouncing him a fool, God says to him, this very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? In other words, God points out that the man is finite. He has been the focus of his own efforts, but he is coming to an end. At that end, He's actually very empty and very lonely. He has not chosen to be a neighbor. He has not chosen to be a friend. And so all of his efforts to all of the greed practices in his life end up being up for naught. There's nothing left for him at the end. So therefore, Jesus says, don't build up for yourself stuff on earth, but rather be rich toward God. And the NLT translates that as have a rich relationship with God, to which I will add, and with neighbor, because we know that to love our neighbor is to love God. So it's a pretty direct message with some pretty deep implications, isn't it? Greed bad, God good, or more helpfully, greed takes the place of God. You can't live them, live both ways at the same time. And this teaching is so important that throughout the rest of the chapter, Jesus goes on to teach about storing up treasures in heaven as opposed to on earth. He also talks about God's care for us so that we can choose not to store up treasures on earth. And he talks about how God cares for us more than all of his other creation. He tells the people not to worry because Jesus knows that worry is the trailhead marking the entrance to the way of greed. We hear this word, this clear, direct word, and it's hard. 
We probably agree in theory, but in practice, we are anxious people. It's hard not to grasp after our own security. We are often tantalized and trapped and lulled to sleep by the promises and the practices of greed. We can't avoid money and possessions. Some of us are blessed to have an abundance. Should we feel shame about that? Should we be afraid of material things? Well, no. God doesn't desire us to live from a posture of shame or fear. But then what do we do? How do we heed Jesus' warning to watch out for all kinds of greed? And I think that all kinds points to the motivation. This one is motivated by anxiety. There are other kinds of greed motivated by pride or maybe motivated by envy, right? It can come from a lot of different places, but the outcome, the greed, still knocks God out of the place of God. So how do we do what Jesus has asked us? How do we stay on our guard against all types of greed? Well, first, I think we have to be honest with ourselves. We need to take a good, long look at our actual practices and choices with money and possessions and acknowledge what our lived creed is. It might be the creed that you say you believe. It might not. There's the Jesus creed, which we've spelled out today. We've also spelled out the greed creed from this story. It could also be spelled out in other ways. But when you look at your life and choices, what's the creed that you find there? In your activities where the rubber meets the road, what is your lived creed? We're invited today into awareness, and we're needed into confession and repentance. And repentance is an about face, right? It's a change in the opposite direction. So we've seen today what's in the opposite direction of the way of greed. It is the way of Jesus. And if you really desire to be wise with your possessions and your resources, if you really want to live the Jesus creed, that's possible for each and every one of us here today, whether we have a lot or a little bit. Because again, though it's deeply profound in its implications, the task before us is really simple. If we want to live the Jesus creed in regards to our stuff, then we're simply trying to more faithfully love God and love neighbor with our material goods. And so you can ask yourself this reflection question. When you look at what you have and decide how to interact with your resources and possessions, how do God and neighbor factor in? Is the welfare of others a priority? Is worshiping God with your resources a priority? How do God and others factor in? I think honesty and awareness is our first step today. But even good intentions, even repentance and a new way forward can be fragile and fading without power. And we have power today. We have power to live the way of Jesus instead of the way of greed. We need this power to sustain our choices, especially in light of our anxiety. So the evidence and experience of that power, I think, can actually be found in last week's teaching on prayer. Jesus invites us to pray to his Father and to call him ours because by Jesus' spirit in us, the spirit of sonship, we are God's children. We're invited to pray for our daily bread because this is an everyday kind of posturing ourselves back before our Father. That's where our power is, in our daily dependence on the only one who can provide and sustain for us over the long term. It's counterintuitive that a posture of weakness and 
as the Apostle Paul says, or dependence is our power, but it's true. Dependence is our power and our strength. When our anxiety about our security arises, we are invited to remember that the one who sustains us is a good father. And at the same time, we're invited to remember our own worth in God's eyes. Twice in chapter 12, once before this parable and once after, Jesus talks about how humanity is worth more to God than the other creatures. Why is that? Because we're not just creatures. We're children, the adopted, beloved, chosen children of God. And when we lean into the truth that we are his children and he loves us and he can provide for us, when we build our lives with practices that help us lean into that truth, then anxiety and greed and earthly possessions can finally lose their grip on us. And our relationship with God becomes rich. We become rich in heaven. So today our invitation is twofold. To honestly examine our lived creed. And then to lean into the power that helps us live the creed we want to live. The Jesus creed. And I just want to be really clear real fast. This is not an intellectual exercise. Remembering and leaning into your power to choose dependence, which is unnatural, over greed, which comes way too naturally to us often is probably going to be a matter of looking at your real practices and changing some of them. Where the rubber meets the road, what does it look like to choose to live in to the power of your dependence, to trust God every single day? He invites us to pray every single day because he knows that we worry when we look too much further ahead, right? That's our choice, every single day dependence. One of my goals on my recent sabbatical was to take an honest look at my practices. And I found some areas of incongruence. I found the need to confess and repent. And in doing that, I discovered again what a gift confession really is. Because when you empty yourself of the stuff that's not of God and that just doesn't work for your life, then you're empty. And you're able to be filled back up with all the power God has to offer. When you confess, you become dependent on the mercy of the one who really does love you and who really will provide. And so because I'm working on my practices, I'm a work in progress. I think I will continue to be throughout my journey of faith. I think that's what we're called to. But I'm working on them. And so my life is better structured now to lean into my dependence than it was before. And I'm inviting you today to look at your own practices because I believe there's life there. I think there's life to be found in getting realigned. I'd be happy to share with you more about my journey and my process or just to talk with you about yours. The reality is there's a lot of different practices that can help us live a life that's counter to the way of greed. There's almsgiving. We talked about a need that we could give even earlier today. There's also generosity and simplicity. And even Sabbath can help us to not live the way of greed. But before all those, beneath all those, and binding all those together, I would say that there is prayer, prayer that postures us every single day as children dependent on our Father. And you know, the prayer that Jesus teaches, the Lord's Prayer, John said last week that those words aren't magic and we don't have to pray them specifically, and that's true. But I do want to say today that though they are not special, they are powerful because those words give God God's place and invite us to assume ours, our place of daily dependence. So as we close today, I want us to pray that prayer together. 
But it's my hope that in doing that, it's not just rote memorization. It's not rote reciting for us as we pray that prayer today. But I want to invite you to really think about those words, to think about what it means that you're asking God for his kingdom and his will to be done. His kingdom is the place where everyone has enough, where there's not scarcity, but there's an abundance so that everyone has enough. We're asking for that every single day. We're also asking him for just what we need. So as we pray that prayer, I want to invite you today. Some of you may need to pray that as a commitment to a new way, a new lived creed, a different direction. And some of us might need to pray it today as a reminder and a renewal of our posture of dependence. But no matter what you're praying it for, no matter how you engage with this prayer, I want us all to know that we can be secure in this. We have a really good father who is faithful to sustain and provide for us step by step, day by day. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Let us pray together the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.